Welcome to the Cumberland River Compact's River Talks podcast. In each episode of River Talks, we explore a new topic related to the health, enjoyment, and stewardship of the Cumberland River Basin's water, people, and special places. We sit down with experts, artists, researchers, professionals, and more to share their knowledge and experiences. I'm Katherine Price, and I'll be your River Talks host. Be sure to subscribe to River Talks to be notified of every new episode, and don't forget to rate and review our podcast. You would be hard-pressed to find someone who has had as much influence over Tennessee's environment and its people as Dodd Galbraith. Dodd has dedicated his life to building an inclusive, transparent, and influential environmental movement in our state. He spent decades in public service before turning his efforts towards training the sustainability workforce by developing Lipscomb University's Institute for Sustainable Practices. In 2020, Dodd Galbraith was the recipient of the Robert Sparks Walker Lifetime Achievement Award from the Tennessee Department of Environment and Conservation. In this River Talk, Dodd shares about his roles in local and state government, his mindset behind creating the Institute for Sustainable Practice, the role of creation care in the environmental movement, and how and why we should all find our space in protecting Tennessee's environment. Well, Dodd, thank you so much for joining the River Talks podcast today. Um, I'm excited to talk with you and just learn more about your perspective on Nashville and, and Tennessee environmental issues. And I think as we talk today, our listeners are going to learn about the really varied work that you've done and currently do. Um, and so just to start, could you tell me a little bit about your background and how you got into the environmental field? Oh, that's a great question of... You know, it's it's really an accident. Uh, you know, I was a kid who just felt safer and more alive outdoors. And uh, I, I grew up on two different kinds of farms, oddly enough, uh, one in South Georgia, which was very different from the one in Tennessee that I grew up on. But from about, you know, zero to age 10, I played in the woods in North Georgia and romped across uh, through cornfields and through in those days, we call them pecan orchards. Other people call them pecans. But where I come from, we call them pecans. And uh, uh, just spent a lot of time outside. There were a lot of swamps and wetlands uh, and, and really slow-moving, meandering rivers uh, in South Georgia, where I grew up south of Idalia. A lot of uh, creeks that were full of water moccasins and copperheads. And for some reason, you know, even as a kid, we were never afraid of those kind of things. Um, and we should have been because we would see them occasionally. The water boxes down there get huge. And in Tennessee, it, it, it was a totally different environment. It was um, it was Highland Rim, Cumberland River Valley mixture. So we'd, we'd be playing on bluffs one day overlooking the river with these remnant Highland Rim kind of geologic formations. And then down below, we'd see the, the floodplain and the bottomland hard, hardwood forests and uh, totally different kind of wetlands uh, with a different kind of species here in Middle Tennessee. And so I just had this, this uh, early introduction to, you know, um, a broad array of ecosystems and a broader, particularly a broader way of a, aquatic ecosystems. And so water kind of became my first love, you know, fishing, swimming, uh, you know, just enjoying all forms of kind of water activities and and all kinds of water environments. But oddly enough, I grew up with family who were Barry Goldwater Republicans on one side and Yellow Dog Democrats on the other. And so I never I never understood partisanship or ideology because 
I had a mix of that among the people that that I loved and that loved me the most. It's interesting the way you talk about kind of growing up and the you know, looking at water and looking at these ecosystems. And I can hear a lot of that in sort of the work that you do today and 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 how you you bring that perspective. And I think when I talk to people and ask them similar questions, you know, this childhood love for nature and the environment often comes out. And it's it's good to know that people still have that in them when you're out there doing this work to protect these environments, because that is so valuable and and, and kind of driving driving the work that you do. Like I mentioned, you wear many hats in the environmental world. So I'm going to ask you probably about a few of the different roles that you okay. that you have, but let's start with actually here in Nashville on the stormwater committee. So that committee, um, you know, you're the, the chair of that committee. Tell me a little bit about the role of that committee, um, how, what, what you all do with that committee and what are some of the issues that you're seeing come through the stormwater committee? I think it's something people don't realize has the impact that it does in our community. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, a lot of people probably watch public television and wonder how in the world the Metro Council representatives talk about the minutia of potholes and sewer lines. And it's even worse when you look at probably our, our stormwater committee, because we're talking about the minutia of riparian buffers and floodplains and, you know, uh, how much floodplain storage is going to be interrupted by a proposed variance or how, or how much of a buffer we're going to lose you know, if someone has the corner of their addition for their grandmother, you know, that they're trying to work onto their house, you know, we're trying to work with them to, to create a little flexibility, but also to make sure it's mitigated. So it's, it's, it really all goes back to that original passion that I was talking about earlier. It's, it's easy to do what you already love. And, um, and I'll digress for just a minute on this topic because it, it's it's why I've stayed on the stormwater board as long as I have, I think 15 years or more now. Uh, I heard Carol Browner, the, the longest serving EPA director in history, say this at Vanderbilt recently, but when people ask her how she got into her line of work, she said it, it was just a total accident. You know, I started off with an interest, my first few jobs, uh, she said uh, she quit because she hated them. She kept looking for jobs that were related to things she loved and she kept doing them. And so that's that's what got me involved in stormwater. It, it was my first discovery of a passion as a young soil conservationist with USDA. So I was working with farmers managing stormwater in cultivated fields. And so our job was to keep cultivated fields from carrying soil, fertile soil away and reducing the productivity of the farms and our, and our country's food systems um, uh, if that wasn't properly managed. And then urban stormwater management, which is primarily what the, the stormwater committee you're referring to, it's, it's a different dynamic. We're dealing with pretty secure landscapes, landscapes that are covered in, in forests to some degree, that are covered in uh, suburban yards and residences, covered in parks and playgrounds, but then also covered by a lot of concrete, a lot of buildings, you know, a lot of sidewalks, a lot of paved asphalt roadways. And that creates a, a hardened surface that causes a lot more runoff uh, to occur. Matter of fact, half of all the runoff in Middle Tennessee in a purely natural environment is in an average storm is meant to be infiltrated into the soil. And, and uh, about half of all the rainfall we, we receive that doesn't go into the ground that that isn't pulled up into the tree uh, is supposed to be evapotranspirated up in the atmosphere. And so our job on that committee is to try to work with this altered human environment to try to minimize flooding for people downstream, try to make sure it doesn't get worse as Nashville grows. 
and to also uh, try to deal with, you know, being good neighbors to each other, being flexible in, in the variances that allow an Oracle, you know, to build us a greenway while they're developing the new corporate headquarters or, or that uh, works with, um, like I said, the, the grandma or mother-in-law quarters that someone's trying to add to their home. And I love the way that you you introduce the work of the stormwater committee, really with just balancing this simple infiltration runoff of apotranspiration. You know, it's sort of three variables, um, but it has such a big impact on water quality. And I think, you know, when you maybe when we break it down to those three things, it can maybe make it a little bit easier to understand, you know, sort of the impacts that we're seeing. Um, now, you mentioned with the stormwater committee, you are looking at everything from an Oracle development to somebody's, you know, backyard renovation and things like that. So what what types of things have you seen? You said you've been with this committee for 15 years and in Nashville, that's a that's a huge change. What have you been seeing recently and maybe what are some of the changes the stormwater committee has been making? Yeah, the you know the the biggest I say the two biggest changes are that uh, you know I actually had to come before the stormwater committee as a citizen uh, when I was doing a stream restoration project at Ellington Ag Center. We we um, needed to to take vertical banks of Seven Mile Creek that were eroding and and causing sediment to fall in the creek and causing a lot of habitat impacts uh, by adding sediment to to spaces where aquatic life need to thrive with that sediment smothering them, which is part of the food web, which helps the, the bigger aquatic species thrive. And, um, and I had to get a, a variance to, to reshape the banks and to put more trees on the banks because all the trees were gone in many cases. And one of the challenges that I dealt with was um, they said, well, you're gonna slow the water down. You're gonna create roughness in the floodplain if you add more trees. And so therefore you, you need a variance for that because that's gonna cause waters to rise upstream when people are expecting it to flow fast downstream. And, and I, I got to thinking, you know, we're kind of looking at this one dimensionally, you know, in that discussion. So what about the people downstream who now water is being held upstream the way nature would do it anyway? It's being slowed down, it's being spread out, the energy is being taken out of it. And so they're gonna receive water later. So their flood peaks are gonna be lower, even though some of the flood peaks upstream may go back to their original higher levels, they're still gonna be flatter because there, there are these buffers or delays in the system that are natural that we don't have to pay for. They, they reassemble themselves. You know, they, they, they plant new seeds to replace themselves when they die, as long as we don't get in there and mow under them and encroach them too far. And uh, so that was one of the first things I learned was that there was a there was a need to create a more holistic approach to stormwater management. The second thing I observed was that uh, it was a very casual conversation in in closed rooms without any uh, without any transparency other than the minutes of our meetings and and the, those who attended in their memories. And so um, over time, uh, we worked to add uh, public television uh, so that. What people see is fully transparent to them. Uh, they know they know what's at stake. That helped enormously in the kind of in the accuracy of information that the plaintiffs would bring us, uh, not plaintiffs that the the applicants would bring us. And uh, um, and the reason I use the word plaintiffs like that because we do work in a quasi-judicial role. So we're hearing two sides. You know, we're hearing the staff view of the regulations, and we're hearing the applicant for the variance view of how they would like to adjust how the regulations are affecting them on a particular site. And um, 
And so it's really important that everybody have a little extra incentive to come prepared, you know, to, to make sure their facts are verifiable and citable and so that we could trace them in case there was a concern down the road. And TV enormously helped that. Um, and I think it was Mayor, Mayor Barry that actually helped us. As a matter of fact, I know it was Mayor Barry that helped us accomplish that. Um, and then the third thing was, um, was uh, the 2010 flood uh, dramatically changed our perception of, you know, um, uh, being much more stingy with protecting floodplains from um, variances that we could, that might be helpful, but that we could frankly do without through better um, alternatives analysis, you know, asking the applicant to consider, uh, you know, moving their footprint or asking the applicant to um, just consider another piece of property. I, I remember one case, we had a gas station proposal that was going to be put basically on top of a wetland uh, alongside of a stream. And, and I, I just finally asked the applicant, I said, you know, uh, would you say that you're putting gasoline and oil closer to the stream and closer to the hydrology of our community or further away? And they, of course, they had to answer in the affirmative. Yes, we're putting it in a pretty wet site. I said, well, why would you want to pick this site? So they withdrew their application and they went and found a drier site. That's not to say that wasn't happening before. Um, you know, the thing that we had coming into this process, and now, uh, you know, one day when I stop doing this, I'll, I'll be leaving this same kind of dynamic behind. And that is the amazing professionalism and technical expertise of Metro Water professionals in Davidson County. You know, uh, uh, one gentleman who supervises that division is basically kind of the provost for the National Floodplain Managers Association. So he he educates and designs curriculum, you know, for floodplain managers all over the all over the country. Um, uh, we have individuals who previously worked with the state and who now work with Metro. Uh, they have written guidebooks, uh, low impact development guidebooks. I know way back under Mayor Purcell, the stormwater staff um, recommended to Mayor Purcell that he appoint me to an advisory committee to update all of these sustainable and low impact development practices. And so we were light years ahead of other um, parts of the country. Um, and also in regard to flooding, we have very tough requirements uh, for building you know, uh, minimum floor heights, uh, five feet above base flood, which a lot of flooding managers around the country, you know, tell us is just unheard of, you know, in their communities. And uh, all of that wasn't driven by the 2010 flood, but it, the 2010 flood gave us clarity and certainty uh, that was pretty critical. Uh, and so uh, the staff that we had at the beginning of that process not being perfect and now at the end, have enabled us to quickly upgrade things all along because it's really the, the political will of the community, the policy making framework community that allows better ways of doing things to occur. And fortunately, we had good staff who who quickly pivoted to that need. Already had the concepts and the and the draft policies, you know, already had researched that really well, and so we were able to lead the nation in that regard. And I would I would add one other thing that doesn't come up very frequently, and that is kind of a you know, precedent setting situations. We had a case come up uh, involving a parcel on the Cumberland River that a landowner really wanted to develop. He bought it well after the buff ordinances were passed. It was in a frequently flooded area. It, it was an area 
of the county where first responders would have to go in there and rescue people if there were houses there because even the roads adjacent to the homes would have been underwater during a major flood event. And we denied it with a tie vote. It went to the state appellate court. The state appellate court um, sided with um, the tie vote, which essentially is, is like a no vote. Uh, and if you don't get a majority, then it's an, whether it's a tie or not, your variance is automatically denied. The, the court analyzed each individual no vote in that 3-3 tie, and each individual no vote held up under the procedures and the, and the different uh, methods that we use to consider evidence and offer some of our own personal perspectives. And we established a legal precedent that uh, described um, what a hardship is and that previously had no legal definition for stormwater. It had one similar for the Board of Zoning Repeals, but it didn't have a similar one for, um, for stormwater. And now we, we don't have to debate what a hardship is anymore. That long explanation tells you right there how excited I am about working on these issues because I could just talk all day about them and bore everybody to death. But, uh, but when you love what you do, it, it really just kind of effortlessly flow through your brain. You know, the stormwater committee is one of those things when I learned about it, when I started working at the Cumberland River Compact, you just realize that's kind of where the rubber hits the road on some of these issues. And when you look out in your community and you see something, yeah, being developed or not being developed, and you start to realize that it's groups like you all that that are um, making some of those decisions. And, you know, something we talk about a lot is, you know, the way that we can just elevate the conversation about water in these communities so that people know where these these conversations and these policies are happening. So I think, yeah. like you mentioned, Nashville has set a really great precedent for sort of the, the open communication of the stormwater committee, the way that you all have approached a lot of issues, the low impact development guidelines have really assisted with Nashville in this, this period of growth, but in surrounding communities, they might have everyone has a little bit of a different perspective. And so understanding where are these decisions happening, who's making these decisions in my community. Um, and the stormwater committee is made up of folks that represent both, you know, university engineers, as well as representing the, the public as well. So it's- it, And it developers. Is, and developers. And so it's intended to be, you know, all of these different perspectives. So I encourage people to think about, you know, how how these conversations are happening in their own community and the ways that they can they can get involved as well. And that's that's so critical. I mean, I mean, you know, I've had people in the past say, you know, you know, this is information I think you should know about this particular variance. And I, you know, I, I tell them, I said, I am like a sequestered juror, you know, when I'm not in that in that meeting. I cannot entertain evidence outside of that public discussion. So if people are are not willing to come forward and share what they know, we can only process in a decision what is publicly presented for a case that is publicly noticed with 30 days of advance notice. So it's 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 really it's really critical that we have public participation. Um, the other thing that I think that helps a lot is that people learn, you know, you know what's expected before they get there. They learn what the what the procedural dynamics look like, um, you know, they, they they get better at sharing information more efficiently. You know, for example, um, one of the things that I have worked really hard to uh, intuitively teach and instructively teach to applicants is, you know, if you don't come prepared, um, we're not going to fix it for you during that hearing. You're supposed to come ready, you know, uh, in American regulatory tradition, the burdens on the applicant, the burdens on the polluter, polluter pays, 
So, you know, they have to come prepared and deferrals are very expensive, you know, when you've got a huge project that's underway. And so we, we've taught applicants, if you come ready, we'll process it fast. If you understand, you know, uh, what's what's feasible and what's not feasible, it'll it'll get processed a lot, a lot easier. Uh, you know, honesty is really important. And uh, and a lot of times honesty is is also a good um, fiduciary defense <laughs> against uh, you know doing something that one day somebody might hold you financially accountable for. So so in some cases, I'll actually ask questions that force people to put things on the record mm. so that we'll have that record down the road in case they were not honest with us. You know, and the, I, I'm not there to judge whether they're honest or not, but it is a responsibility, I think, of the chair to get all of the evidence on the table on the in the record so that uh so that uh, down the road uh, all those things can be reevaluated if something goes right or goes wrong mm -hmm. well it's really important work and i'm glad that that you're been part of that and seen those changes and and you know I've watched a few of those committee meetings just as we were preparing for this conversation. It's interesting to see to see the the variety of things that come up. So I definitely encourage people to to check it out. Um, and you know, you talked about you know how Nashville is a little bit unique in some of the work that we've been doing in, in water. Um, and you also work statewide. So I know you also work with the Water Quality Oil and Gas Board. And so what are we seeing across the state when it comes to water issues and sort of the the work that's happening at the state level yeah that's i've got a very unique perspective because um you know i've managed environmental policy for uh, uh in part for governor nam recorder and in the whole for governor don sunquist um and uh during those years uh wetlands issues were really hot um, we were focused mostly on West Tennessee in those days because 80% of Tennessee's wetlands are in the western part of the state. Uh, but as we moved into um, the, uh, the mid-1990s, um, two things happened that shifted things. One, uh, a more conservative-driven policy viewpoint came to be more of the norm at the federal level. That was during the Gingrich Revolution and the 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 um, uh, I forget what it was called the deal with America or whatever it was they, the contract with America, all the Republicans in Congress signed and so they basically wanted to see a smaller role for government and they want to see things occur more bottom up, and because of that you know we learned to to go out into the community and engage people more on water issues and find out what was important to them, and then work towards their needs that were floating up to use a water analogy. And that turned out to be a very effective way to kind of manage policy. Uh, and in those days, the water board that I now sit on had a lot more power. It, it had power to hear appeals. Uh, it met for two days. It met every month of the year almost. Um, over time, this new kind of uh, uh, less top-down approach, more bottom-up approach got codified in legislation and in a new framework for how that board works. And the board I sit on now actually combines at least two boards, maybe three boards that were previously separate boards. And also, we don't hear uh, uh, instant appeals anymore. We, we only hear them after an administrative law judge has already heard it, already made a decision, and one of the applicants wants to appeal it to the state water board. And then we have to vote on whether or not we want to hear it, a lot like the Supreme Court does. You know, do the... Uh, this, and the, we don't have to hear an appeal just because someone asked us to consider it. 
And, and therefore, we only meet about twice a year. And we only meet for half a day for twice a year. So it's, it's an entirely different kind of dynamic than it was. So because of that, and because, you know, I'm not a pure water professional anymore working statewide, you know, I'm not tracking broad water issues anymore. I'm, I'm more focused on, um, you know, training future sustainability professionals at Lipscomb, you know, chairing uh, the uh, monthly meetings of the Metro Stormwater Board, which are always focused on stream buffers or floodplains and, uh, and occasionally wetlands. And in um, uh, this two day, two half day of meeting year where uh, I've yet to participate in an appeal uh, that we had to hear and process. And I've yet to participate in, in, in any significant policy decisions because it, it is a dramatically pared down kind of process. So, you know, I think what all that says is that the public really needs to be more engaged in this new world of kind of bottom up emphasis if they want to see results. And fortunately, that's the way this country was founded. You know, it wasn't founded by, you know, a, uh, an American uh, concept that was already financially established and already had an army. We had to go out and build a government with farmers and merchants from scratch. Uh, and, uh, and we turned out developed a pretty good model. And so it, it, it can work effectively again, but it still requires participation. By yeah, the way, I'm not encouraging people to go out and start a revolution <laughs> over water. That's not what I was saying, but, you know, organizing that, that, that influential collection of, um, of common interest, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it can be done peacefully uh, and it can be done, uh, you know, institutionally, or it can be done through average people. Yeah. And I think, you know, we talked about it with the stormwater committee, but also what you're talking about at the state level, you know, these, these boards and commissions sometimes seem so kind of abstract and how they function. But then when you hear from you who are on these boards, on these commissions and saying that the participants are really important to these conversations, the public comment, I think it reiterates to people that, you know, groups like you all are ready and want to listen to that 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 public comment and to engage in in those conversations so for people to feel encouraged and not discouraged from being an active part of the process yeah yeah and i, I would also encourage people to be a student of civics you know which we don't teach a lot in school anymore and you know, I, I don't like hearing old timers like myself kind of beat up school teachers and others for not teaching civics anymore because we all have that responsibility or it's taught to us or not so, you know, if, if you just go look at a simple org chart of the executive branch and an org chart of the legislative branch and an org chart of the judicial branch and look at all the agencies and, and read a little bit on the activities of all those entities, you know, you'll find out that there are appropriate places to bring your grievances and your concerns to get a response. And, and there are places where it's just going to be a dead end. And frankly, the, the State Water Quality Oil and Gas Board is not the kind of place to bring uh, new topics to for proactive results. That's the General Assembly. You know, that's, that's, that's the legislative branch. That's, that is the governor, the executive branch. We're a quasi-judicial citizen oversight board that hears appeals and that listens to reports from the Tennessee Department of Environment and Conservation about what they're doing with basically no other authority than, than the being participants in that process. So it's it's really critical, you know, that if you want to see change, that you know your legislature, 
that you know your legislator, your congressman, your state senator. It's important that you know, you know, your city council representative and your and your mayor and get to know them and get out and talk to them and share things with them. Because I, I can tell you as someone who used to report to uh, the policy manager for the governor, right under the governor, and would sit in meetings with the governor and, and, the, and the chief of policy and myself just talking through one particular topic, the um, pressure or the, um, the peer pressure or the uh, reminder of something that's outside of our realm of everyday experience is a big motivating factor on our awareness and the way we process things. So the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? And uh, sometimes, sometimes it has to squeak a long time. Yes, sometimes it definitely has to squeak a long time to get that attention. Now, I, I want to go back to something you mentioned um, about kind of training the future stewards, because that's a lot of the work that you do now with Lipscomb. So tell me a little bit about um, what went into the creation of Lipscomb's Institute of Sustainable Practices as you sort of transitioned in, in your career. Yeah, it, it was really kind of the culmination of a lot of life lessons, you know, uh, I had worked with farmers in the beginning of my career in my 20s, and I realized that without a graduate education, I wasn't influential with executive decision makers. You know, my, I came from a very small county. I didn't have great writing abilities. I didn't have great communication abilities and, and nor good critical thinking skills. I had a good science-based undergrad degree, which uh, has always served me well, but I couldn't sell you know, my ideas and my concepts well to decision makers with really short attention spans because they're busy and really focused agendas that they that needs to fit the value proposition they're trying to create for their own administration or for their own constituents. And so going going back to graduate school, it taught me uh, how to do that. And so I got hired by the governor's office almost right out of, actually, I got offered a job right out of graduate school but there was a point to where that all stopped working. You know, one, it's most people will tell you who do public service that it's it's a bit exhausting. You know, I'd, I'd get a phone call on a Saturday night from a reporter, 10 p.m., and I'd see my quote the next day in the Tennessean laying in my driveway at 6.30 in the morning, you know. So it was a lot of pressure. It was a lot of energy. It was a lot of effort. And I had learned in state government that if I spread my influence through a network of experts that, and teams that I created that I could have a bigger impact than my predecessors had. So I decided to do that with, with this institute. I decided to create a program that, uh, fortunately at the time, was already interdisciplinary oriented, uh, already addressed uh, solving problems through multiple disciplines. Because frankly, a lot of the problems that we face today are created by one type of expertise that didn't consult the other type of expertise. So when we tried to solve an air pollution problem in gasoline, we put an additive in there that actually polluted groundwater. So sustainability in 2007 was this new holistic problem solving process that said, let's make sure that the environment and that the economy and that equity are all addressed in an integrated way, not a parsed way. Having learned how to manage broad expertise in state government with 24 different agencies reporting to me, um, in terms of the, the kind of a policy vetting that we would do, having learned in working with farmers that it requires a business person, uh, an agronomist, uh, and a civil engineer to control soil erosion at a large scale. 
you know, having learned that all those inputs are really critical, we created a, a graduate program that covered all those bases. That um, first, when students come in, they take a class in earth systems. They take a class in the enterprise of delivering uh, sustainability, the, the economics and the business tools of sustainability. And they take a psychology and sociology class on managing and dealing with people. And then they go get to specialize based upon their respective disciplines. So if they come in as a civil engineer, or if they come in as a real estate appraiser, if they come in as a nutritionist or a pharmacist or a chemical engineer or a mechanical engineer, then the path that they select within this broad holistic framework of sustainability will get specialized and focused based upon the discipline that they bring into the program. So that way we're not selling them something they can't use because they're not really fundamentally trained in that area. And they're continuing a passion that they probably already identified. They just hadn't been able to apply in a meaningful way. You know, I would sum up all that by saying that I help people discover meaningful careers that that expand my influence much more broadly than I could do uh, as a policy advisor to the commissioner of the environment and the governor. And when you look at the list of graduates from your program and the companies and organizations and agencies that they're placed with, you really do see that impact. And I, I mean, I found many people that I interact with, you know, through, through work here that went through the Lipscomb program, you know, and that's, that's, it's really sort of seen as, okay, yeah, this person went through this program. We know sort of the background and the perspective they bring. So it's, um, you definitely have that influence in the community and, and, Thank you. and maybe people haven't always associated that with you, but I think, um, you know, that that's been a huge, huge key. And I'm, I'm glad that they don't associate it directly <laughs> with me because, you know, it's, it's kind of like the, it's kind of like the engineer that designed, you know, the electric car, and and the technician that works on it you know very few people go back to you know the creator but in a human being you're not you're not dealing with one model design you're dealing with a design that that's already made that comes to you and so all i'm doing is is saying have you thought about this or have you thought about that and i know you really want to do that but is that within your current abilities or at least abilities that you can get in graduate school and, and so I end up just being a coach for star football players, you know, or other sports analogies that, that an old man like me can bring up, you know, uh, they end up going out and creating their own careers and, uh, and their own influence. And, and uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's funny when I think back at the people who most influenced me, you know, the first one was Ruth, Dr. Ruth Naff, who was the founder of the Tennessee Environmental Council. That was, it was her position that was vacated in the governor's office that I was asked to fill. And uh, I used to have a lot of conversations with her about how to be influential in that job. And then later on, uh, Leonard Bradley, who was this incredibly thoughtful um, policymaker that went all the way back to Governor Dunn's days. And then Ben Smith, who hired me, um, Justin Wilson taught me, you know, how to think smart and how to, how to ramp up your intellect to deliver quick results. And Milton Hamilton told me one time, he said, Dodd, you know, you'll, you'll be amazed at how much you get done if you don't care who gets the credit. And he'd been a state legislator for uh, several, for two or three decades and later environment commissioner. So, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of giants. And, uh, and notice I mentioned a minimum of four 
that helped me do what I did. So just imagine how many people in addition to me have helped the people that, you know, you're referring to in the community. Um, you know, and that's really what it's about. It's, it's about all of us helping each other and uh, just trying to, to move uh, progress a little bit further down the road. Yeah. And I, I kind of want to go back to what you talked about at the beginning and sort of how you, you got this love of nature and, and, and love of the outdoors and sort of brought that thread throughout the work that you've done. Because one thing that you've talked about before, and I think is integrated within Lipscomb is this idea of creation care. And I think mm-hmm. that um, concept might be new for folks. So could you talk a little bit about what exactly that means and how that plays a role in the environmental movement? It, it's a huge opportunity. And it's also a, a source of, of friction in theology. Because um, uh, you know, depending on what vein of, of faith you come from, uh, you know, not many of them really um, make creation a, a very big focus of, of theology. You know, most most theological doctrines are are very focused on the eternity of the human soul and the collective embrace of our fellow humanity to to achieve that. And uh, and because of that. And because I think the human brain is kind of geared to situational bias, you know, one bias at a time, <laughs> you know, we, we we tend not to think very holistically or we tend not to think in an integrated fashion. We kind of think about what's the greatest threat because that's, that's really where our genes come from is genes that have survived threats going all the way back, you know, to the beginning of time. And so uh, creation care today is is an evolving theology that basically says, um, and, I, and I think um, Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson and Louisa May Alcott and Hawthorne and, and um, Muir and uh, Leopold and, and Rachel Carson all got it right originally. And that was, you know, th- there's this amazing system out there that has this, uh, Muir, Muir probably said it best in terms of its pure terms, you know, the cathedral of nature. And, and this worship of love, this bigger force than us that, that inspires us uh, and creates a, a paradigm of, of positive interaction as opposed to fighting with each other uh, for eternal togetherness, you know, is, is meant to be a, a, a proving ground of that love. And it's not just in a building. It's, it's in all of creation. It's in the whole, you know, universe. It's, it's in the... Uh, it's 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 out there in all of the science and physics uh, that ties everything together and that explains things to us, and we can find truth and we can find hope, and we can find um, you know a, a reason to explore this together because a lot of it is so poorly understood and and a lot of it is beyond our complete understanding, and so that journey of of always of the dog always having a truck to catch and never being able to catch it. Is, is also part of what keeps us moving forward as, as humanity because we it's never really been settled and it probably won't ever be completely settled. And so um, in its essence, you know, we're, we're just trying to remind Christian people because that, that's our specialty, in particular the, the Church of Christ uh, theology, that um, it's, it's really important to integrate that aspect into our faith so that our faith is not just uh, focused on on ourselves, but focused on leaving something better for the people behind us as well. It's been a tough road because it's not what most of us were taught, uh, and uh, and it's gotten ideologically wrapped up in other viewpoints 
just like wearing a mask got divided up into you know conservative or liberal you know it's it's uh, it's hard to understand how things get in that shape but uh, but that's that challenge is uh, i think part of the glue that that allows us to keep focusing on how to work together yeah it's such an important perspective and i think it also helps thinking about communicating these environmental topics to the public and understanding those perspectives and how these environmental topics can get you know tied in with other things and i know you do a lot of you know public communication you i saw you were just recently on the news talking about climate change so how do you take some of these perspectives that you've had and talked about throughout today from you know growing up and seeing the environment you know but people who love you, you said on both sides of the political uh, spectrum, how does that kind of play into how we can talk about the environmental issues that, you know, are really pressing in our community and make sure that everybody is, you know, invited in and feels a place um, in the movement? Yeah, that, I, I think that's really the essence of the challenge for everything we're facing today, you know, but, um, you know, we're all still experimenting with results and, and with different techniques. And so, you know, one of the ways that I tried to do it on the Channel 5 Plus call-in show was, you know, just to talk about, you know, practical consequences, practical realities. That's the way I used to talk to politicians. You know, what is in your interest? What do you care about most? And did you know this is how this environmental impact is going to affect what you care about? And uh, so, you know, trying to make it more individually interest-focused, I think, helps a lot. And then the, secondly, you know, uh, uh, trying to make sure, you know, that people, I think, understand that uh, it is part of our faith. It's, it's part of our Bible. I know a few years ago, I was struggling with this myself, and I actually did a, a study of the Bible over about three years trying to figure out why I was working for the environment, because it had gotten hard. And I, I, I had gotten kind of beaten up, you know, by people in my church, by people at work, by environmentalists you know, by business people, because, you know, when you're trying to create a solution for everybody, nobody's getting exactly what they want. So you kind of make everybody mad. Uh, but there were a lot of things we did really well that everybody was happy with, and sometimes very happy with, but not perfectly happy with. And somehow that's just gotten harder to do lately. And so, um, you know, I, I've been trying to do it more bottom up than top down. That's That's been my primary focus. When I choose to go on television or when I choose to, for example, last June, I worked for uh, three years preparing for a conference where we brought in Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, a Christian climate scientist. And in that case, you know, I realized, you know, I need to be in the background. She needs to be at the forefront. And so we did everything we could to create venues for this Christian physicist, climate scientist, who was also an IPCC climate report author um, and, and a devout uh, person of faith uh, so that she could be heard in a way that people hadn't heard before. And she got a standing ovation. So, so I think a lot of what I do these days has, to, has more to do with indirect influence. You know, I'm, I'm trying to help Ben Hall communicate a message that he's already interested in, in a way that people haven't heard it before. I'm trying to help our faith-based community in our Church of Christ network of universities hear from a scholar that there's no doubt that she's a good scholar, a science, and there's no doubt she's the highest level scientist you can imagine as a physicist. 
and a Christian, there's no doubt that she practices her faith and, and lives out her faith, you know, trying to put those kinds of, you know, uh, free of doubt experiences in front of people using someone else's voice because mine has already gotten, you know, frankly, trite because they've heard it so many times. So uh, that's probably unique in American history. Uh, um, I think early in American history, you know, you could have listened to the same person for decades, like Abraham Lincoln and others, and you continue to respect their view. In this age in history, we get tired of the same voice really quick. Maybe it's an attention span thing. I'm not sure what it is. So I think it's really critical that we as professionals kind of go back to Milton's advice, you know, that he gave me is, you know, Dodd, if you don't mind who gets credit, it's amazing what you can get done. I think it goes back to kind of all those different hats and roles and, and ways that you have taken this love and appreciation for the environment and figured out how to make change happen. And it's yeah. not just one way. It's not yeah. just one way. And I think that, you know, people learn that with time, all these different avenues that we have to take to drive change. Um, and that it also takes time and that it's one, one year leads into year two leads into something that might happen five, 10 years down the road. Um, and 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 that's water. Yeah. Yeah. Water's (laughs) always looking for the point of least resistance, right? It bumps into something and it moves over until it finds a leak. Yep, (laughs) exactly. And, and so through all of this time and this career, you know, that you've had, um, and you've talked a little bit about kind of what keeps you, keeps you going, but I just want to close on, you know, what gives you continued hope and optimism in the work that you do in protecting Nashville and Tennessee's environment? Human history. Uh, That's, that's what gives me hope. And, and then, like I told Ben Hall, you know, you know, my faith, you know, a, a lot of people in my faith community, uh, talk about, um, you know, the, the predictions for the end of, end of times, you know, the end of the earth where the earth supposedly is supposed to be destroyed. And, um, and then there'll be this return. Um, but the, the, the more precise view of, of, uh, old Testament, uh, doctrine and, and new Testament language is that the earth is going to be purified by fire and, and, and then God will, will meet us in the sky and then we'll all come back together to dwell on earth for all of eternity. That analogy, you know, is very consistently applied all through science from using fire to clean native grass stands, you know, to purify them of of weeds and and the wrong type of species to, um, you know, going through very difficult times in life, uh, you know, being, being made through challenging times and becoming stronger human beings. It's it, another analogy is the purification of metals. You know, how you, how you have to kind of liquefy metals and then scrape off the impurities and then to get down to pure silver or pure gold. So, it, you know, there are all kinds of analogies that keep repeating themselves. But like I told Ben, if you look at uh, the prophecy in the, in the context of science, you know, um, yes, we could turn the planet on fire with nuclear warfare or we could make the planet so hot with climate change, with human-induced climate change, that we could become almost like Venus, where 98% of our atmosphere is CO2, and the average temperature is 900 degrees Fahrenheit. Those are two scientifically valid ways for the prophecy to be uh, to come true. If you look at the physics of all that and the further science of all that, you'd find out that the sun, uh, any sun in any solar system, as they begin to die, they expand. And as they expand, their heat expands. And so we're at the perfect distance from the sun 
that's healthy, just imagine what's going to happen when that sun starts to die. A scientist predicts that our sun's life is about 5 billion years out. And, uh, and that process of enlarging as a dying star is maybe halfway or a little further between now and that 5 billion years. So let's just say we have two and a half billion years before the sun purifies our planet. And if, if you're a Christian before God comes back and joins us all together to dwell here in this new purified, better place, that leaves a lot of hope, doesn't it? That leaves two and a half billion years to get it right or, you know, launch nuclear weapons in the short term or launch, continue to let climate change spiral the way it's going and, and have another 100 to 200 years get worse and worse and worse. You know, it's, I think the, the challenge is really up to us. I'm, I'm very hopeful that we have time. I'm very hopeful that we have a creator working with us uh, to come up with things we can't do by ourselves. And I'm very hopeful from human history that, you know, human beings have, ne- have always defeated evil eventually, you know, World War, Civil War, World War I, World War II. You know, we, we've always vanquished evil. We've suffered enormously in the process, but we've always vanquished it. So what, what, other, kind of, what other kind of feeling could I have? And, um, but the, the one thing I, I do... I do worry about is, you know, is how do people like me who are nearing retirement contribute in a way that uh, that uh, ensures that that will happen without exhausting ourselves, you know, uh, without overdoing it, so to speak, because, you know, I, I, I do feel a little less energetic than I did 40 years ago, but I'm still as I'm, I'm better equipped than I've ever been. But uh, but I'm very excited by the the 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 year olds behind me. Well, Dodd, thank you so much for this conversation. I think your impact in Nashville and Tennessee, you know, is, is wonderful. And the perspective that you bring to these issues is really appreciated. It's a, it's a new conversation. It's a new way to look at topics that we've talked about, you know, for a while. So I really appreciate you joining me today. I would just say, you know, to everybody who's listening, you know, just uh, study you know, get informed, uh, get out there and get engaged in your own unique way. And uh, you'll be surprised uh, what good can come from it. The evidence is there that every minute person can can contribute in a small, brief period of time and, and have an impact. Thank you to Dodd Galbraith for joining us on this episode of River Talks. If you'd like to learn more about what was mentioned in this episode, don't forget to head over to our blog at cumberlandrivercompact.org blog.